0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. And today's episode is episode number 208. This completes our fourth year of weekly podcasting. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope that we have offered you some hope and some help in this absolutely horrific pandemic that we are facing now, facing before COVID, and we'll be facing after COVID. You know, when a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, there are many choices of treatment, and it can be a little bit overwhelming to find what works and what doesn't. Narconon Ojai, our sponsor, is a residential treatment facility in California that delivers solutions for the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction. They are holistic. Their program is drug-free. It is evidence-based and it is step-by-step and it is designed to free those trapped by addiction. For more information on the Narconon OHI program, call one Now. 231 5924 If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you may have heard us interview a gentleman named Duke Rumley. And Duke has an organization that provides safe alternative to concerts and sporting events that otherwise might include drugs and alcohol. So he had an event on Super Bowl Sunday, and we had the very good fortune to meet our next interviewee. Her name is Katie Sullivan. Katie was a judge in Colorado. She also has her own history of addiction. But most recently, Katie was appointed by Attorney General William Barr as Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General of the Office of Justice Programs. This was in June, 2019. She led the Department of Justice's principal funding research and statistical component overseeing more than $5 billion in grants and other resources to support state, local, and tribal criminal and juvenile justice activities and victim services. So she has quite the background. And without further ado, let's talk to Katie Sullivan and get her to tell us her story. Katie Sullivan, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and being willing to share your story.
0: I'm so happy to be here. It was so it was so fantastic meeting you guys. Thank you, Joni. Thank you. You know, I
1: completely agree. I, in my intro, I said where we met you and where we met Art. And it was, um yeah, it was quite a fortuitous meeting, I think. Yes, I agree. So Katie, you have your own history with addiction. Um, tell us that story. How did you get started on drugs and or alcohol? How did that come about? So my story is alcohol centered.
0: I, um, you know, I think I just, I grew up in a lovely family. I love my family so much. I do. So let me start with that. And, you know, but we grew up definitely with, you know, two cocktails before dinner and, and then, you know, drinking with dinner and through dinner, it was just a part of our life. It just was, um, my mother and father were very happy. They were uh, involved in politics. My father was um, an elected judge. My mother was extremely involved in, uh, in in Republican politics where I grew up in upstate New York. And so we would have a lot of uh, fundraisers. And I remember, you know, always, well, first of all, my parents thought if we ever asked for a sip of their drink, they would always give it to us. And their thought was, if you drink it, you'll realize that you don't like it and that'll be the end of it. And I didn't like it. I thought it was abhorrent. I thought it was horrible. I was listening to um, another one of your podcasts, um, TJ Hollywood, is that right? And he was talking about how much he hated alcohol. and, and And I just have to say, I felt the same way my mom baked this bread once and I came home and I took a bite of it and spit it out. And I said, there's beer in there. It's horrible. (laughs) But the first time I drank and I drank, I believe I drank to fit in was after an eighth grade uh, dance. And so I really wanted to fit in somewhere and I never felt comfortable in my own skin. I, you know, certainly put off that I was confident, but I wasn't. And I remember just being there with these kids and, you know, someone had a bottle and it was like, do you want to drink? I knew I didn't really even like alcohol, but I was like, yeah, I'll take a drink in order just to feel better and to feel better about myself. And, um, and then, uh, I went through high school and, went to boarding school, which was my choice. And uh, that was a big party and then went to college. And then my dad died when I was 21. Mm. And, um, you know, at the time, I, I had no coping mechanisms for dealing with that kind of grief. And, and I just didn't. Um, it, you know, again, I was raised in a family that were very high functioning, but there was alcohol everywhere. There was alcohol all the time. There just was. If there I remember one time my parents decided to take a month off from drinking after the after Christmas and New Year's. And I was so focused on when are you going to pick up another drink. Because that's when things in my house would actually calm down is when they were drinking. I mean there was no abuse or anything like that, but there was this kind of tension. Mm-hmm you know, that kind of intangible tension. I know people who live in alcoholic homes know what I'm talking about. And so it was like, just, I kept saying, when are you going to drink? When are you going to drink again? When are you going to drink again? Um, I, after my dad died, um, I got married. I came to DC. I was drinking, 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 uh, just drinking um, went across country on a trip. I do remember on father's day one, one time, and I had some very, very good friends who were extremely Catholic. And my dad was Catholic. My mom is an atheist and she is a devout atheist, wow. right? Like that's a combination. She, <laughs> He's a serious about it. Yeah. And my dad was sort of an unpracticing Catholic. Okay. And so that was, you know, a little unresolved for me. And so I remember on Father's Day and I miss my dad so much, Joni. I mean, it breaks my heart now because I am so in touch with my feelings now. And I just look back on that, you know, 26, 27 year old. I was just missed him so much. Mm. And he had died when I was 21. And um, so and I loved him. So I do. I love my dad so much. And in any event they um i went to church cuz i thought maybe i would feel closer to him there and i think what i what i know i didn't realize is is i was looking for my father mm. but really i was looking for god mm. right yep. so i went seeking my dad but i got my father so i went to church um for uh two or three years i never missed a, a weekend ever I didn't take communion. I sat in the back. I wasn't part of things. And one, I, there was a fantastic priest in, um, in Aspen. And at that point I was sober, but I just decided you're either in or you're out. So I ended up, you know, formally taking all the classes and, you know, giving myself the permission to not believe or not do that. But ultimately I did and ended up joining the Catholic church, but while I was drinking, those those times in church were such a respite. I mean, it just they just were. It was like a moment of of just respite from you know the duplicity I was living and the just the constant, the constant, the constant drinking and the drama, the drama, the drama. So, did you have
1: kids, uh, Katie? Because you were married at the yeah, time. Right? Um, no,
0: no, okay. no, never have. I've never had children. Okay. I never was blessed with children, okay. but. I look at that as, you know, God had other intentions for me. Mm. And so we really, my husband now and I get to really live our mission because, you know, a lot of our friends, that is, you know, they have to think about keeping the house or not moving or things like that. So I've looked at it that way. And I figure when I'm 70 or 75 (laughs) or 80, I'll be very lonely. But right now is my time. So (laughs) there you go. Uh, So in any event, I had you know, a lot of drama. I do remember it was Thanksgiving of 1997. And my mother was, and I were having a conversation and she wasn't being very pleasant and she was drunk. And I was half in the bag and I went to a wedding and I got really plastered. And, you know, it it just, the whole thing was it it just was just not, it was, I just woke up and I remember thinking the day after this wedding, I remember thinking, I am not the woman that my, that my father thought I would be. Mm -hmm. I am not the woman that he thought I would be. And I always was raised to believe that I could be and do anything. And I kind of intellectually honestly sat down and thought about it and thought what is consistent in everything that is, not right about my life and you know everything pointed to alcohol everything and it was just the thread and it was consistent and my uh, brother had gotten sober um, through uh, his own way after during his teens Um, he had kind of done that in his own way my, I had a friend in my circle of friends who were, you know, very hard, you know, drinkers and partiers and the big dinners and the, you know, thousand dollar bottles of wine and the whole thing. So somehow that doesn't make you alcoholic, right? Because it's all so fun and glamorous, whatever. And um, so this one woman didn't drink. And so I called her and I said, and I had asked her before when I was drunk, I would say, you don't drink. What's up with that? What's what's your deal? And so, you know, I called her on this one evening when I just, it was enough was enough. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was just sick of it. I was sick of all of it. And I um so I was divorced. I was living in my mother's house. I was 31 years old. I was like, this is just not how I want to live. So I called her up, she told me where she went. I went I got an appointment. I went there. They assessed me. They were like you need inpatient treatment, but your insurance will only pay for outpatient unless you relapse. And I said, well I'm not going to relapse. Like if you're telling me that I am an alcoholic, then I'm not going to drink. And or use drugs, obviously. And uh so they said um yeah, that's and I said, OK, so I did the outpatient treatment program and, and it was just started,
1: alcohol, right? You weren't doing drugs. No, yeah. just it was alcohol. OK, yeah,
0: it was, I was a drunky drunk. OK, so um, and then I and then we and then I yeah, I got sober and then I went to the I loved it. I loved my outpatient treatment. It was wonderful. Finished that up. And however many, I can't remember four or six months. And then I wasn't big into AA at the time I would go occasionally, but it was more for luck, you know, pretty determined not to use, you know, I was determined. Um, But I didn't really have a great life. Uh, You know, things in my life didn't get better. So then after a couple of years, I finally started to take, you know, AA seriously. I got a sponsor. I worked steps. I've done that multiple times. And, you know, my journey just finally led me to Al-Anon. And I can't describe enough for your audience when it's your time or if you're a family member and you're listening please go to Al-Anon. I know it seems crazy. It seems like they're the ones with the problem. They're the ones who have created all the drama. They're the ones who should pay the consequence. Why should I have to go to these meetings? I think the whole world, if the whole world went to Al-Anon, it would be a better place. I really <laughs> do. It, it's where I learned, you know, AA saved my life, but Al-Anon gave me a life. And, and
1: Al-Anon is for the families and loved ones of alcoholics, right? It's
0: families and friends of
1: alcoholics, but it's
0: also, you know, I'd say it's for anyone who grew up really in a dysfunctional home, but yes, it is really based on, and and the idea, the history of it is really interesting because Lois um, and her friends used to go to the AA meetings with Bill and, you know, everyone back in the day and they would bring, or maybe this—I heard this through another speaker tape. A great one. What was her name from Texas? Anyway, they all went, and they used to bring the cakes, and they would—the women—they would bring the cakes, and they would bring mm-hmm. the, the coffee, and they just thought, you know, they were indispensable. And one day, they showed up, and there was like a a sign on the door, and it said, you know, only AA people are welcome. So the girls went, the women went downstairs, the wives, and they were like, well, why can't we have our own meeting? And, you know, things just evolved. And so, yeah, it's really for family and friends of alcoholics or drug addicts. And it's just such an incredibly helpful program. It It is, you know, that, that I f- oftentimes think that I couldn't have found Al-Anon without AA, but right. Al-Anon is definitely my go-to and where i feel the most comfortable
1: interesting um now when you were doing that when you were doing aa and um like orient orient me in terms of the time were you working were you a working attorney at the time or okay yeah okay were you in private practice
0: no uh uh i was um at the time i think when i got sober I was working in a state government in New York, okay. and then I moved. Actually, I moved to Colorado, and I was working more as an event planner. I took some time off as well. I'd bet you know I was divorced. Um, I took a big cross country trip. I think that was all. The cross country trip was before I got sober, but that was such a huge part of me. I knew there was so much more out there in the world that I wanted and I didn't want to keep living, you know, as the, you know, whatever the uh, the elected officials, daughter, the judge's daughter, the, this, or the wife of, or whatever. I, w- I just wanted my own, um, to carve out my own space, but I didn't have the wherewithal because the addiction, the alcoholism was, you know, was all I could think about, you know, you would think about moving, but you couldn't actually pack and get it together and move. Right. Right. So, um, and so I took a trip across the country after I got divorced and that really just, I was like, this country is so beautiful and there's just so much more that I want to do. And there's other places I want to live. And so, you know, again, shortly after I got sober, maybe nine months after I actually moved to Colorado, worked in event planning, got my Colorado bar license, and then was a prosecutor for a period of time, had a private practice and then became a judge. So that's all been over the last like 23 years.
1: Wow. So you were, yeah, you were sober, clean and sober when you were a judge.
0: And in Colorado, okay. yeah. By the time I moved, yeah. Perfect. Oh yes, hundred percent.
1: Yep. So, in your career as a judge, what mm-hmm. what did you encounter in terms of addiction? Because I know that's part of your story, a big part of your story.
0: Well, um, part of it is is as a uh, well as a prosecutor and all of the be prosec- working in the criminal justice system. Right. You see that so much it doesn't matter which side you're on or where you are in that courtroom, you, you know, drugs and alcohol are a tremendous basis for, you know, what happens um, for many, many people. Now, there are some people who, I mean, I just want to caveat here. There's some people who are just truly criminal thinkers. They are sociopaths. They are not you know they probably do we do need incarceration for people like that right um there's people i saw really work the system in terms of saying that they were you know oh well i have a cocaine addiction and they did do a lot of cocaine but they really were predominantly a criminal right uh so but i saw so many people struggling with drugs and alcohol and then having criminal behavior and So it's a two pronged thing. You can't just deal with the addiction. You have to deal with the addiction and the criminal thinking. And um, so as a prosecutor, you know, I certainly tried to encourage people to get help. I, Joni, I really, this is probably Mm -hmm. as public as I have ever been about my own story. Okay. Um, Al-Anon is an anonymous program. It's private, it's confidential. And, you know, we, we, are, we make sure that in press, radio, and film that we're not touting that. that. That worked for me. And I really like to encourage people to go to Al-Anon. But as a judge, a prosecutor, and a defense attorney, I didn't use my own story to, to assist people, right? right? Because we attract by, by not by promotion, but um, just by example. And so if somebody kind of likes what you have, I did have clients come in to me because I used to go out and, you know, have a lot of fun with my friends, dancing and things like that. I mean, I was in my 30s. I was single and I had one client come in and said, oh, I saw you leaving such and such a club and you were really wasted. And I said, what makes you think that I was wasted? I haven't had a drink or drug in 11 years, you know, or 12 years or whatever it was at the time. And um, I said, because I was out dancing and having fun, you know, that I would push back on that stigma. Um, But I did find being sort of a younger female judge, sometimes you hear stories about these older men who, you know, you know, would hand a chip out and show them their 25 year chip and say, I'll see you in a meeting tomorrow. And, and I found that that did not, really work for me. Um, I, you know, again, I don't look at the world in terms of female and men and all that kind of stuff. Right. I never knew if it was female or I was young, but I was also tough as a judge. And so people were constantly, you know, trying to find ways to, you know, I was tough. Cause you're I a held- girl
1: and therefore you're going to be softer. Cause I've heard that before where people say, Oh, you definitely want to have a woman judge cause she's going to be more lenient or more understanding. Yeah. Not necessarily.
0: No, 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 not, not, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, for me, the most loving thing that you can do for an addict is hold them accountable Right. and addicts come looking to see if they can get over on you. Right. And the it's, it's, a disappointment in a way when, if they can, like, if you've told them, look, I'm going to help you get sober. I'm going to support you. I'm giving you these things to do. Here are all of your, uh, here are our, our expectations. If you don't meet these expectations, then these are your consequences. That's it. We're laying it out. It's all right there for you. They're going to test whether you really are going to hold them accountable if they don't meet your expectation. Yep. And I believe, and I used to tell my um, drug court and DUI court clients, I would tell them if, you know, I'm I'm putting the bar very high because I know you'll need it. If I set the bar low, you won't jump over it. Right. And right. so we had an abstinence-based um DUI and drug court treatment uh uh, courts at a very dedicated team um we had you know what I think wonderful successes we worked on people's addiction and their criminal thinking um you know the team was extremely supportive And as a judge, though, ultimately, you know, you have to, you know, these are defendants who are in court for a reason. And if they are not, if they are a risk to public safety, then you have to, you know, you have to hold them accountable. And the best we, you know, they're, they're small. So like, if you were, had your, you know, first positive UA might be a two days in jail. Now, some judges, and I will say some a lot of literature and say relapse is part of recovery. And so you shouldn't punish that first using, you should up their treatment. But I think that that kills people. And I'll tell you why. Because if you haven't used for you know a month or two months and you've been trying to do the right thing, and then you go out and you have a use, that can kill you. That you people are most vulnerable, like when they first step out of jail, to death from particularly from opioids, because their system ha- is not used to it. They use the amount that they used to use, and so I never wanted my clients to think that it was okay to use because I thought that one use, kind of, if we said well relapse is part of recovery, mm. then they go out and use and you know, someone dies, which I, I happen in other drug courts, you know? So in any event, um, I think that my experience with um, sobriety helped me know when uh, clients were, or defendants were trying to get over on me or things like that. Um, It helped me relate to them, I think. But I didn't relate to them directly as someone who was in recovery. I, you know.
1: Well, and I think I think uh, excuse me for like evaluating for you, but I think that what you brought to the bench was someone who knows that being sober and clean is an absolute possibility for every single individual. And so there's no, well, this guy has this or that problem and he can't get sober. And oh, I understand. No, and I think that to the degree that you held them accountable for their own sobriety, I think that's huge. And I'm hoping that that also speaks to parents who have a tendency to enable their children because they don't know what to do. And I think your what you said about you know you you give certain um, goals or certain requirements that the person must fulfill. And if they don't, you come out, come down hard with the hammer so that they know that you mean what you said, you know? I, I think it's huge. And I think you, you it, could bring that because you know you can be clean and sober. You are clean and sober, so. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or You can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narcanon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's narcononoja org, Or call one 866 231 That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes. The hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. The service comes with a free one hour consultation with Bobby.
0: So that's really that's very kind and very insightful. And I had never thought of it like that. Um, but it is there was no doubt in my mind that these people the miracle was there for these people if they wanted it and were willing to work for it. And there was just no vacillating um, for me on what the requirements were or what the, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, it just, to me, it's like we followed the 10 key components of drug courts. Um, so we were, we had a good, healthy model um, minus the free one use, which I just did not believe. I thought that they needed to know if they used that was the thing that we were going to take most serious. Of course, we were going to up their treatment and we were going to up some other things. But my clients did something recovery related every day. Um, they, if they didn't have a job, they did community service because, you know, I say, if you live like a crackhead, you're going to do crack. Yep. So you need to get up in the morning and come on. And um, my probation officer would go and, you know, do a home visit. And if their house was not you know, messy, they would teach them to clean, um, you know, try to have a clean house. Um, we had treatment, uh, we had them invest in treatment, they did have to pay for some portion of their treatment,
1: which I thought was important. I think that's totally valid. Uh, I mean, they have to, you can't just uh, give it to them. Anyway, right. sorry for interrupting. And
0: <laughs> no, so true. And I, I mean, I really did just come to love. I still hear from some of my drug court clients and DUI court clients, and I've been gone for uh, a a good period of time.
1: Um, Katie, you saved hundreds, if not thousands of lives. I mean, look at it. You did.
0: I don't know about thousands. We had 150 people go through both courts. We were in a rural community. Um, We had about a 79, we had a 79% Graduation rate. And if you can't graduate someone, then you really, you know, then, you know, people are failing out, then you aren't getting the full benefit of the program. And by when I left, we were at approximately an 11% recidivism. And of course, that's how DUI and drug courts, the idea is this if you have this very intensive court for high risk, high need people, and it's only for high risk, high need. They have to uh, value. They have to assess into that category, and you have this intensive treatment, which could include trauma-informed care. Um, we certainly had peer group substance abuse, peer group, uh, um, other peer group meetings that were mandated. Um, we had uh, community service, um, you know, regular meetings with probation and regular time with the judge. And there's studies that show that if a judge spends three minutes every other week with a DUI and a drug court defendant, and it, that has a tangible difference on how they do when they get out. Interesting. And so I know you wouldn't think so, but what I realized was you know, there had been some, probably some parenting missteps along the way yes. in a lot of these cases. And so you became almost like the reparenting yep. of the, of the client. And you and they held
1: the line and they will respect you because you held the line. Do you they know? They
0: wanted authority. Yep. Like they wanted someone to say yep. sort of either do this or um, on the one hand. And and that's what I used to tell them is just, I love you enough that I'm going to hold you accountable for this. And, I'm, you know, so all of your chatter, very good. I mean, look, addicts are so manipulative. Again, I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts (laughs) and that's a word um, that comes up. It's like, if you want your alcohol or your drug, you're going to say whatever it takes to get your alcohol or your drug. That's all there is to it. Here's an example almost inevitably, it it was pretty, it was totally consistent. Someone in their first month or two months would say that they needed dental work. Mm -hmm. This is so interesting, right? Dentists, like they write the script, right? We would always say, okay, well, what is it? We would assess it, of course, and get the, you know, have them bring in the sheet from the dentist saying whatever needed to be done. And we'd say, oh, You know, for the most part, you're going to be able to do that with um, with ibuprofen, you know, Mm -hmm. because and like nine times out of 10, all of a sudden the toothache would go away or the you know, magic. Yeah. yeah, We had people (laughs) who had snowboarding accidents and legitimately needed to be on painkillers. But those were quite frankly, we would have our probation officer. We had a really I mean, people were just learned quickly. And then what I loved was because we created such a group, um, dynamic in both my DUI court and my drug court. So everyone stayed for court the entire time. People were able to learn from what they heard from other people. It was, I loved Wednesdays were great. (laughs) And, um, but they, they became like a group. So when someone new came in, they would be able to tell them, oh, she's not going to buy that. Don't even <laughs>
1: Don't even, yeah, try don't even bother. She knows.
0: <laughs> and then I had this great thing, which I just throw out there in case um, incentives are a big part of things. It's not just consequences, but it's also incentives. And it took me a long time to wrap my head around that because I was very black and white in my thinking and I was wrong in case my team listens to this I'll <laughs> say it again I was wrong but um, I just could not understand I'm like I'm giving you the gift of freedom because these people would be in long-term incarceration but for this program right? right so you get freedom you get I worked you know tirelessly with these clients and with you know as did my team so you get all of our time You're getting freedom. You're getting sobriety. You're getting a whole new life. You're getting all that. So I got to give you a prize now too, you know, but all the studies and that luckily Karen Hager, a very special person to me, she was, she kept coming and saying, look, judge, look, there really is this really got to have incentives. So we had an in-work day with the team. Um, and we were going over a bunch of issues. And so I brought it up and I said, ah, oh, God, Karen won't get off my back about incentives. Does anybody else think we should give incentives? And the whole team was like, yes, <laughs> because that's what everybody's saying. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, if we're going to have incentives, we're going to have the coolest incentive program that anyone's ever had because I'm not just going to do one. So we, I bought a Wheel of Fortune, off of Amazon and it's full-sized and you could use dry erase. I'm just throwing this out there in case a drug court or DUI court <laughs> listening. and it has dry erase. So you could change the, you know, change the tags. And I remember bringing it out. It was amazing. And so we would have to find very inexpensive things or we would get in kind di- donations from, You know the different um, uh, uh, shops and places in town sometimes uh, parents or everybody on the team contributed so they would come up and spin the wheel and I would come off the bench which is also a very you know when you are when you're raised up a little bit and there's a bench in front of you, there's a, there's a, a psychology to that like A disconnect,
1: right? a little bit of a disconnect kind of, you
0: know, right. Yeah. And also like, I am an authority right. and you know, the whole thing. And so I would come down off the bench and if you got a spin, I would stand with you when, well, the, with the people, well, you know, that my defendants, well, they, uh, they got their spin And so apparently, of course, I never heard this, but the treatment provider would be with them before court and they would all say, you're going to you're not getting a spin because you didn't do this. Or there's no way you're going to get a spin because you missed work this week or (laughs) something like that. And they really seemed to enjoy it. And we did lots of fun things. We did affirmation cards, which. The clients would kind of roll their eyes, but it was fun. We'd have them read it and then we would interpret it. And so the wheel of fortune I left for my successor. And I hope that he is using it in such a fun way. I don't know. It was very Vanna White. So I was also living out a, you know, (laughs) a a childhood fantasy. It was great. And they loved it and they really worked for it. I will say that we, they really worked for it. And it was a, it was, it was wonderful. So the Wheel of Fortune is on Amazon. It's about 300 and 400 bucks.
1: And it it was just fantastic. I love it. I love it. It's such a great story. You, you did so much good as a judge. What made you leave it? You, you ended up in DC. Tell us a little bit how that happened, what you were doing. Oh, that.
0: so like I said my well I guess we were talking before we started filming but my husband and I were not um you know we just weren't blessed with children and we met a little later in life and I told him he was um in pursuit of his PhD and we kind of had a I mean it wasn't a deal but I just said look the PhD I love being a judge we met while I was a judge and I just said, look, you work on that. When you're done, we can look at doing something different around your, you know, PhD. And so when we turned 50, I kind of just said to him, you know, we really need to think of a mission, right? Because I knew that I didn't want to move up the ranks. I knew I was in the perfect judge spot. Mm-hmm. I loved working with the defendants. I didn't want to be like an appellate court judge. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to sort of move up the ranks of judge. I was in my perfect spot for me, right? Mm-hmm. Multitasking, lots of people. I I heard 42,000 cases in my 11 years. Wow. Um, but I also ran the drug court and the DUI court. So that was totally not part of that 42,000, <laughs> right? And I loved it and I didn't want to do anything different, but you, I think it gets a little stale for everyone. If you're there forever, people get tired of you, you get tired of them. You know, it starts to wear on you a little, there's all kinds of studies about judges and you know, how long they can kind of maintain on the bench. But anyway, so I turned 50. I remember saying to Art, you know what? We don't have kids. And so we can do anything we want. Mm-hmm. We should find a mission and do it, have an adventure because, you know, we might get bored with each other, you know, no kids to talk about, no distractions. And I was like, we should totally have a We should go have an adventure. So we were extremely supportive and um, committed to president Trump's agenda And we loved him and we watched and we prayed and we cheered him on and we just thought he was great. And so the day he won, I said to my husband, we're going to go work for him. And he sort of placated me and patted me on the back and said, sure, we're going to go work for the president of the United States. And I said, no, we are. You know, he's a substance abuse specialist. The president had prioritized the opioid crisis the addiction crisis which the administration you know took on full bore and um you know i knew that my husband was the perfect person to come and help because of his practical experience his lived life experience and i was like they you are gonna go (laughs) so we got our landed and he can tell you about that and then I actually finally, you know, there's a lot of, um, you just, a lot of phone calls and a lot of emailing and a lot of, you know, getting to know someone who knows someone who knows someone who will send your resume. And people are very generous about that in DC, about helping out to an extent. And so my resume ended up at the Department of Justice and they asked me to come and run the Office on Violence Against Women, which was a pivot kind of away from all the addiction and substance abuse stuff. But obviously, I had done that work all the way through my 20 year legal career right. and mm-hmm. had watched the laws and the Violence Against Women Act and how it had changed things and, you know, sort of how it affected and and where we were on issues of domestic violence sexual assault dating violence and stalking. Mm-hmm. And so I that was a really fun challenge and I loved it there. Um I went to the White House for a little bit after that and then I on domestic policy council which was great and then I really wanted to work in the White House and it really was amazing. Mm-hmm. And then um General Barr had taken Um, over as attorney general. And he asked me to come and run all the grant programs, pretty much all the grant programs at the uh, Department of Justice. And so that was a sort of 4 to $5 billion office with about 1,200 employees. As um, I was uh, performing the duties of the assistant attorney general, my nomination was pending in front of the Senate, but the Senate Judiciary Committee was very focused on getting uh, judges uh, confirmed, which was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I love that job. I loved <laughs> it. I loved working for General Barr. I loved, I loved implementing the priorities of the president. Um, we were, we spanned everything. Every part of the community is touched by Grants from the Office of Justice programs. And to your shows, uh, we there was we had approximately $75 million a year in drug court money, veteran treatment court money, wellness court money, which is, you know, family courts. We have a COSIP program. It's called a comprehensive opioid. Uh, sub, uh, stimulants and other substance program. So those are, uh, you know, co- comprehensive programs dealing with substance abuse with law enforcement. Um, you know, it could be a partnership between a treatment center and, and law enforcement. It could be for Narcan. It could be for training so many great things. And that's like $175 million. You know, I don't know what will happen now because it doesn't appear that this administration has the focus on the addiction crisis that President Trump did, which is a shame um, because, you know, methamphetamine is raging in this country. Um, You can't just shrug and think that your police officers can take care of that and public safety. So. I served as vice chair on President Trump's commission on uh, law enforcement and the administration of justice. And in there, we made several recommendations of how to kind of get, you know, the the issues regarding substance abuse and mental health and homelessness, kind of move them away from, you know, back to HHS, Health and Human Services, where they should be. So we made
1: Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, I I just want to add in an editorial comment because we've, you know, we've said before in the podcast, this is not a political podcast because addiction is not a political problem. And I'm kind of echoing what you said in that hopefully the current administration will continue to implement, you know, programs to address this pandemic because even though COVID gets all the news coverage, and the vaccine and all of that. But you know, this, this addiction pandemic has been around for a long, long time, way before COVID and will still be around. And it's not a political issue. So I can only just echo your hope that a lot of those programs, you know, will continue to be in place, even though maybe they'll get called something different or whatever, you know, but it's like- well, it's not, it's, you know, there is a, I, I agree. It is absolutely, it was never treated
0: like a political issue here ever during the Trump administration. It really wasn't. But there are policy differences like harm reduction versus abstinence based, whether the focus is on treatment or whether you think that pharmaceuticals can just fix the problem. That's a whole other podcast,
1: Katie. Ah. Right.
0: (laughs) But what I am saying is, is that while, you know, there may be attention to the issue is it you know is what's coming from the federal government going to be something that you know further's the destigmatization of this there is no pill there is no pill there is no drug that can just do away with every your drug addiction it is lifelong disease something that you need to recover from and you need to work and it can't be fixed with a pharmaceutical just saying, yep. can they be helpful? Are they a tool?
1: One hundred percent, a short term for a very short while, but not for long term.
0: Yeah. Yep. So, I will say that it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, what the policies of this
1: new administration might be. Agreed. No, I I know that you you don't exactly know exactly where you're going to land at this point, but do you foresee continuing to work in the area of drug addiction or do you think you will continue to focus on domestic violence and violence against women?
0: Oh, I don't think either. I mean, when I was at the office of justice programs, we had juvenile justice statistics, law enforcement, um, uh, uh, it was the full Penelope of the criminal justice system, okay. and really, what interests me are reentry programs, you know, drug court programs, rehabilitative programs, law enforcement overall supporting, backing the blue, supporting law enforcement, um, and then also I have an interest in you know everything that happened in this election and looking at, and I've been studying copiously on election integrity, election laws, and things like that. So, you know, look, I think President Trump's agenda is something that I continue to completely support, and I would love to continue to, you know, push his mission forward without any question. I think, you know, there's there's at
1: least 75 million Americans who would like that as well, so. Understood. Katie, yep. thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. I just think that, you know, you you just have such an incredible story. And and you also have a good message. Your messages that you put forth when you were a judge in Colorado, I think, you know, I'm hoping that if there's families listening and loved ones listening that they, you know, they kind of can get that idea. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thanks so much, Joni. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. You know, I want to reiterate, whether you are a Trump supporter or whether you are a supporter of President Biden, this subject of addiction is nonpartisan, it's nonpolitical, it's non religious. We don't push any political agenda. We just want solutions to the problem. Um, Katie happened to work for president Trump. We know that he did have, um, some good viewpoints about addiction. I am assuming that president Biden does as well. So thank you so much for listening. And if you have a loved one that needs treatment or if you yourself need treatment, please don't wait. Please don't wait for something to happen. Just get help now. And we will talk to you again next week.
0: You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. For more information on Narconon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcononohai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.